0: Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. Glad you're here with us today. We're going to be in the book of first Corinthians So if you have a copy of the Bible, please turn your way You can tap your way if you have a digital Bible. We're totally cool with devices To first Corinthians 13 if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic We'll have those words on the screen. We'd love to give you a Bible in a modern English translation We'd love for you to be reading along with us see where we're getting this and this is one of those chapters You might want to earmark anyway Because even if you're new to Christianity, you may have heard some of 1 Corinthians 13. Because it comes up at a lot of weddings. So if you ever get roped into going to a Christian wedding, this kind of comes up a lot. It's, It's known as a love chapter or even the love chapter. And I think that's appropriate. It talks a lot about love. But it talks about it in a way that I think we sometimes miss. It's actually pointing to something incredibly important and convicting. And so I want you to see it. I want you to be able to understand it. I want you to see it so that you have a right relationship with the Lord, but I also want you to see it because the lifeblood of what we would be together as a church. When we talk about how a church is worth the mess, that's the black and white edition. That's the color. <laughs> I didn't realize that was happening, but yeah. All right. Worth, why is it worth the mess? It's very difficult To be a part of a community. It's very difficult to engage in a community long term because you have to say no to a lot of other things. You have to say yes, even when that community can be off-putting, inconvenient, very, in fact, difficult. What makes it worth it? What is the love that flows in through you in some way to the other people in the community and back? So when we think about this, when we think about what it is to actually feel love towards the Lord, one of the best examples that I see on a daily basis is our, uh, our puppy. I don't know if you guys were like us. We were dumb enough and lonely enough during the uh, pandemic to actually get a dog. Um, they're great. Once you get used to them, at the same time, hmm, you know, I'm not sure that it was all, all <laughs> worth it, uh, but he's a great little dog. And he loves us, uh, I think. He's got what is called a herd instinct. He's got a very high, this breed has a very highly developed herd instinct, which is our way of purchasing a dog that we were sure was going to love us. Like we didn't have to earn his love. He loves anything that moves. Uh, but if you're the only thing in the room, you're convinced that he really loves you. You see him. And when you walk in and his tail doesn't wag really fast, but it wags really hard. He's got kind of a longer tail and it whips either side of his body as it goes around. And you watch that tail go back and forth and you think to yourself, yeah, he really loves me. I can see it. I can feel it. He sits with me at night when I get up late and I'm nervous about the sermon. He sits with Rachel all through the day uh, and then barks to protect her from, you know, squirrels and people walking outside the house. The house gets really, really quiet, and Rachel's typing away and working, and all of a sudden the dog will bark, and then I hear Rachel go, Chip, oh my gosh, freaks her out. And he's become this part of the family, and he's a part of the family with our love towards him, and I think his love towards us. Here's my question for you this morning, as you're thinking about the way that you connect to the church, or the way that you connect to the Lord, is is not the externals. How are you doing with the community? Who are you hanging out with? How are you serving? Yes, serving hope kids. Get a shirt. But the idea goes much deeper. I think it's really easy, especially in a place like Hope Church, where all of the fun stuff and the external stuff is really great. And the people are really fun. And community group is easy. And the, the service that you might do, you get to do with other fun people like my wife or David's wife. You might miss what is the lifeblood of the church, which is the the real question of 1 Corinthians 13. And I, I think really the real question of 1 Corinthians, which is, do you love the Lord? Is your relationship with the Lord like my dog's relationship with me? He's a crazy dog that does terrible things and creates difficulty. He's expensive. But I'm sure, the one thing I'm sure about with that dog is his affection towards me. You can make a huge mess within the church if do you love the Lord. One thing that concerns me on a Sunday, and I think some of it's just social. I don't want to be too dramatic about it. But while we come in and while we talk with each other and while we're friends together and maybe we check in on each other from the week, I don't hear a lot of people talking about the Lord. When I think about my relationship with the Lord and I think about the people I talk to and the way that they talk about their life, I'm concerned about the prayer or the lack thereof. I'm concerned in my life and yours about the evangelism or the lack thereof. I'm concerned about the giving or the lack thereof. I'm concerned about the way Hope Church does the ministry that God gives us to do. And the reason I'm concerned is not because you don't try to do things with excellence. That's not really even the question within 1 Corinthians 13. The question I have is, are we doing these things out of a desperate, passionate love for the Father? This is the way that he talks about it. In the scripture, he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I don't know if you were reading that with me, but within the context of 1 Corinthians, instead of the context of a wedding, you know, you just read that out of nowhere in a marriage, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, sure, love is more important than anything else. Amen. Okay. And then when you're in a marriage, you say, or a wedding, you say in yourself, love between this guy and this lady. That's what they're talking about. Yes. But that's not really what Paul is mostly talking about. What he is talking about at its most essential level is your relationship to the Lord, is the activity, are the relationships that take place through this little group, through this little family, driven by, passionate about, for the glory of the Lord that you love. If not, this is a problem. Paul is actually saying that you can do things way more excellently than Hope Church will ever do them, with faith to move mountains, with knowledge that perceives all mysteries. But if you do it at a much greater level without love, it's meaningless. What's crazy, and I think this is what was going on in Corinth and what happens a lot in the church, is that there are really impressive things taking place. And they are taking place without love. It sounds crazy to say that. One of the examples that he has here, I mean, he's talking about different things, and we'll talk a little bit about tongues and prophecy next week. That's what the whole next chapter is about, so we have to talk about it, whether I want to or not. But he talks about tongues and prophecy here. But then he also talks about having all knowledge. And then he talks about having faith so as to remove mountains. And then he talks about martyrdom. It's actually possible, and I don't think Paul is just like riffing here and getting carried away by his own rhetoric. It's possible to even deliver up your body in martyrdom and do it from a motive that is not love of the Lord. Think about that for a second. Martyrdom is one of those things that has very few possible motives because you're not around after the martyrdom to enjoy whatever it was you were trying to get. A guy named Chesterton that I love made it and really said this in a really funny way. He said, Nero could not hire 100 Christians to be eaten by lions at a shilling an hour. Uh, For men will not be martyred for money. You can't be martyred and expect something on the back end. There's very few possible motives for martyrdom. Because at the end of martyrdom, you've been martyred. You're dead. Like there's nothing you can use then to enjoy. It has to be something greater. It has to be something really, really abstract, something that you're very passionate about, something that you think you can have. What I think is very concerning is that Paul is saying it's possible even to go to martyrdom out of love for something other than the Lord, because I don't want to say it's not love at all. It's love for yourself. I think that's what Paul's been building up to throughout all the 12 chapters to this point is that people were doing this stuff and they were being about these things and they were being really impressive and outdoing one another in these impressive christian things, but they were doing it for the purpose of themselves, to further puff up themselves. When we say as a culture, love yourself, I think we all understand something of what that means, but it's not really possible. You're the one self that you can't love. Love requires an other. When people have this kind of pride and people go into this kind of understanding of what Christianity could be, they have the opposite of what John the Baptist said when he talked about how Christ must increase and I must decrease. And we've said this multiple times, but you just need to hear it a thousand more. It's not possible for you to walk into Christianity and say, I want to make God great and me also a little bit great too. As soon as you allow that second motive to come in. As soon as you say, man, I want want God to be glorified. I want his kingdom to come on the earth. And also, it would be really great if I were an important part of that kingdom. As soon as you allow that in, even just a little bit, you start to compromise the whole system. There's a reason that the Lord put in several of the gospels, if not all of them, several times, conversations between the disciples and themselves about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Think about that. Multiple times the Lord made, us clear, made it clear to us that the followers of Jesus, who would be these foundation stones for the building of his church, were that proud. And we look at him, and we laugh about how stupid the apostle John must have been. Really? Do we not have the humility to realize that if John fell into that trap with James and Peter, the guys who like saw the transfiguration... Maybe we could fall into that trap too. That maybe we'll get to the end of this thing. Whenever the Lord takes Hope Church away or takes your life from your bones, that you might get to the end of this thing. And he says, I never knew you. You used my name a lot, but you were actually doing all of that for yourself. Do you love him? 1 Corinthians 13 sounds really pretty. Do you understand a little bit the warning that's here? It's chilling. Because the question has to be, do you love him? You cannot bring importance into the kingdom of heaven. Everybody comes in on their knees. Read Revelation 4 later today. Revelation 4 tells the story. It gives the vision of God sitting on his throne. And around him are these creatures that are flying around, constantly singing about his glory. They're angelic. They're greater than we can understand. When you read the description of these creatures, you understand that for John, what he saw just didn't translate into language. Because when you try to like imagine what it would look like, It gets real weird real quick. I think what he's saying is there's something that's just above our level of intelligence. We've got a doggy understanding of something that the Lord has a greater understanding of. And he's showing him some picture of that. But then along with those creatures are these 24 elders. And they have crowns and they sit on thrones beside the Lord's throne. And every time these things sing, the elders hit their knees. They take their crowns and they throw them before the Lord saying, no, no, you are the king. We're not elders you're the king. Your glory so much surpasses ours that we're going to take our crowns and throw them at your feet. And it says, every time the things sing, and the things are singing all the time. This is another place where I think Revelation is trying to communicate something that is beyond our experience, which is something that is kind of outside time, this eternal present moment where this is constantly happening. Otherwise, you just imagine they would just be, the only thing they do is getting to the, hitting their knees, throwing their crowns, and then go in to get their crown to go back and sit down so they can again hit their knees and throw their crown. You can't walk into heaven with a crown. He may glorify you for his glory. But you are always going to be glorifying him. It's always going to be about him. The place of heaven is about your love for him. How can you do that if you don't start now? Do you love him? Jesus is really clear. You have to lose your life if you want to save it. Famous part of John chapter 12, Jesus answers The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You may be new to this verse. It's Jesus describing something, he's describing a principle. If you're old within the faith, you might say, okay, well, he's talking about his death. He's talking about how when he died on the cross, he brought about life for many. And you're right. You're absolutely right. But do you understand what Christianity also teaches is that you also are called to follow in that example. You may not be put on a cross. Few of us are. But you are called to take who you are, what you consider, your importance, what you consider, your ego, And it's supposed to be daily putting it on a cross, setting it down, leaving it alone, walking away for the glory of this Lord that you now consider the center of your universe. That's why Jesus continues in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. He's not talking about himself anymore. He's now pointing at us. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He's describing this, this constant theme throughout the Gospels, which is give up everything, you get Jesus. You get Jesus, and you get everything. Try to keep everything, you miss Jesus. and missing Jesus, you miss everything. Do you love him? And before you say yes, look at how he talks about what love actually looks like. Because love isn't something you can just tack onto your list of things to be proud of yourself for look at what love actually looks like. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You ready to do that? I read something like this, a description like this, and realize that I've never felt love for anyone. I thought I did. It was love for my little Grinch heart, but my heart is still two sizes too small. It's, it's still not actually feeling love like it's supposed to. Look at this description. You don't ever get your own way. You're not allowed to be irritable or resentful. That's 60% of my time. You, are not allowed, you, you have to endure all things. Really? Are you willing to sign that contract? All things. I feel like I would want to discuss what all things might include, but I think all things includes <clears throat> all things. Have you ever felt a love like that? Have you ever expressed a love like that? Maybe. Maybe there are moments with your parent, with your spouse, with your really close friend, with your sibling with your child, maybe there was a moment where you said, I'm in. No matter what, I'm going to endure this with you. Maybe there's a moment when you see something that is really unlovely in them, something that might incite you to be irritable or resentful, something that might create in you a desire to be rude or to separate, and instead, not rejoicing in wrongdoing and rejoicing in the truth, yet you still love this person, bear with this person. Because you just, you really do love that person. Maybe you've had flashes of that. But what the Lord is describing is a love that that really only comes from one place. It's a love that can look on unloveliness and love it. New Testament scholar, this guy D.A. Carson, mega genius guy, he says, But God loves what is unlovely. If, as John 3.16 tells us, and John 3.16 is a verse that says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So John 3.16 is a short way of describing the gospel, which is Jesus coming to save those who have rejected him, who've rejected God are separated from God forever, but because of what Jesus has done, can now have a way to be forgiven and brought back into this family. So he says, John 13, if, as the gospel tells us, as John three sixteen tells us, God actually does love the world, it's not because the world is so lovely that God cannot help himself. Judging by John's use of the term world, God loves the world only because of what he is, not because of who we are. Reverse it. Instead of thinking about the love that you might have had for somebody else, have you ever experienced love? When you've been caught or confessed something truly awful, and you see their eyes see you for the first time. Maybe you've experienced this, maybe you haven't. I think we've probably all experienced it in degrees. Some of us have experienced it in pretty extreme scenarios. You've been caught, you've confessed to something truly shameful. And the person that you have broken relationship with, the person you have hurt has eyes and you're seeing those eyes process what you really are in your unloveliness. If you've experienced that moment, then you can start to ask the question, Will the love continue? It's agonizing when you feel that separation and you're waiting to find out. Will the love continue? Could the love be rebuilt? Could the love continue? Would I love them if they confess this to me? Do you understand the gospel is that you and I look at God and we're not cute puppies. When we look at God, we're people who have totally embraced what is shameful, It's not just God's arbitrary law and we've stepped a toe out of line. We've run towards things that are dark, that we need to hide in darkness, because it's shameful even to speak of the things that we do in the darkness. And God sees that unloveliness. And what he chooses to do is to remain just and yet be the justifier of those who are far from him by being the judge who looks at you and says, guilty, but then taking his robes and sending himself to a cross to accept the punishment that you deserve. My new favorite show is called The Catch a Smuggler. It's fantastic. Don't watch it if you don't have time because you won't stop. When you start watching it, you'll watch border patrol, people in airports, people that are kind of checking shipping containers as they come in, and they're looking for contraband. It could be anything. Mostly narcotics, It can be people, can be money laundering. People trying to take large amounts of cash from one country to another. I ran out of the American one. There's only so many on the service that I had. I've been watching it at night when I can't sleep. So I went to the Roman one. It's the Rome version and it's all very funny and there's lots of machismo and yada yada but these two guys were trying to get money from Italy to Africa as part of a criminal um, you know organization and they were caught and the Italian police are bringing them back into this room within the airport to confront them and to go through their stuff and to find out if they really are they're taking a bunch of money that they're not allowed to take out of the country and they did and one of the two smugglers was an old pro at it. He didn't care one fig for the Italians or for their jail system. He even made like a little booh at him. It was really impressive. He did not care at all. <laughs> the other smuggler was new to it. And who knows the situation? I'm not here to judge this guy. The, the police officer was actually really clear that these people get bullied into it and there are threats from these organizations. And... But the fact was that this guy had been caught smuggling In a foreign country. And the Italian police were clear with him. You're now under arrest. We need you to sign this document to show that you understand that you're going to jail now. And as soon as they said it, the man hit his knees. And he put his hands over his face to pray to them. Please, don't do this. Please. May, may, may i please can i call my wife can i call my children and he's he's broken you immediately see what he realizes is happening the gavel hammer that is falling on his head and the italian police are trying to give him some water and get him to sit up not because they care they're just like you have to go to jail now you can't keep making a scene we've got other things to do <laughs> what the lord does when he says you're you're guilty you're caught isn't just hand you some water and and lug you away. What he does is he steps into your brokenness and he takes it upon himself. He bears all things. He loves you with with that kind of love. Christianity and the Christian gospel is not just a way in which you can be forgiven of your sin. Christianity and the Christian gospel is a way for you to be introduced to the one who loves you like that. It's not a way, it's a relationship, it's not a religion, it's the gospel that God is giving you himself. Do you love him? Because look at how 1 Corinthians 13 ends. God makes it really clear, this isn't just about you doing better at Christianity, or you being a more loving person, or your love looking more like a God-like love, that those middle verses describe. No, 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 no. What this is talking about is when you will see him face to face. It says in verse 8, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. What's he describing? He's not describing how to get better at love, is he? This isn't a skill to master. He is describing how one day you will see him face to face. He's saying the things that we're messing around with now, that have a purpose now, are partial. They're stopgaps. That's why he describes prophecy, tongues, and knowledge itself as gifts from God for his church that are going to pass away. He talks about how partial understandings that we have now will be consumed. They'll be eaten up by the whole, by the fullness of what is to come in that full revelation. He talks about how childish understanding. And You say to yourself, I thought we were supposed to be like a child to get into the kingdom of God. Yeah, you're supposed to be humble like a child. But there will be a day when you give up your beginning understandings in order to accept a full understanding. A child does not understand like an adult understands. And that's what he's describing. There's, There's going to be this fullness of understanding that overwhelms what was. Then he talks about the blurry and distorted image of a person seen in polished metal. That was how they did mirrors back then. They would polish up a piece of bronze and make it really, really shiny and get it to a place where it actually did kind of reflect. You ever been in kind of a junky outdoor bathroom and that's what they have instead of glass? Does it work? Yeah, not even a little bit. That's what he's describing here. What is the difference between one of those like prison cell um, metals that they just polish up and give you as kind of a mirror and the image that you see there Versus real clear vision, seeing face to face. He's not talking about knowing more. He is talking about the moment when you finally are with Him, when the veil is lifted and you finally see His face. Throughout Christian theology, this is so much bigger than it is for us. It's this concept of what's called the beatific vision. They understood that God is so much higher than us. This is so much the bankruptcy of our culture and what we got out of the Renaissance. But but they had so much of a height to God that the idea that God would choose to show you His face, the idea that you would get to see His face, the concept was that His face was so beautiful, that he, He was so magnificent, so glorious, that to see His face was irrevocable joy. One writer said it this way, there is one face above all worlds merely to see which is irrevocable joy. Listen, you have come to know the one who has brought true love. Do you love him? We're gonna do a baptism today. That's what this big thing is. This is our baptistry. And we're gonna put somebody in there and they're gonna do the thing that Christians have done for thousands of years as obedience to our Lord in his picture of the gospel, a picture of being brought down into death and then being brought up into life. The idea is that you and I now are down in death. We are, we're separated. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's part of why even when you come to know the Lord, you have this heart that is constantly pulling you away from Him and towards pride. It's this broken flesh. When we baptize, we talk about being laid down into that death. And then, and it's just like the fairy tales would say, by Sleeping Beauty, who's kissed, and the love from that kiss wakes her up. If you're a guy, it doesn't really work as well. Take a different one. Beauty and the Beast. Big, hairy, gross, disgusting, monstrous beast. But the love of one who can see what is unlovely and yet love it anyway, what does it do? It transforms. It goes from a beast into a prince. That's the description here. You're going down into death and coming up into life. I had a very minor minor procedure this week, but it involved anesthesia. And they put the tube up my nose and the thing in my arm, and I'm laying in the thing, and my feet are hanging off because I'm too tall, and the people keep knocking my feet, and I was like, I hope that won't bother the situation that's happening. And they were having me sign the things, because they're like, this is minor, but you should know that this could happen, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. (laughs) Please sign here. And it's like, you're already strapped in. I don't know what you would not have happen at that point. But so you sign the thing, and then the anesthesiologist says, these things could happen. Please sign here. (laughs) So you sign that. And as a kid, you're like, whatever, everything will be fine. But as an adult, like you know, things don't always go your way. You know, like you might not come up out of this. And so I had that thought as I'm going under. I said, two faces when I wake up. I'm either going to see Rachel's face or I'm going to see the Lord. And I was wrong. I saw an old nurse. She was offering me a Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> it was not what I was hoping for. <laughs> then very soon after that, I saw Rachel, and it was incredible. And said, okay, not yet. I haven't gotten to that moment. But I will, and you will Do you love him? As you listen to this baptism testimony and you watch this baptism, ask that question. When you wake up, when you see his face, will it be for you irrevocable joy? Or is it possible that you've rejected him? Listen, if you don't love him, let us introduce you. We can do that one-on-one. You can keep coming. We'll keep talking about it on Sundays. But God bless you. This is the most important thing you can ask yourself. Do you love him? Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I do ask that you give us the grace to understand these things well, to think carefully, to ask hard questions, to not just jump back into all of the distraction of our lives, which seem to be built to distract us from thinking about hard and important things. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace in this baptism video to display your gospel your way. Lord, worship is always supposed to be directed by you and your kingdom. So. You have given us baptism. Let this symbol communicate where my words just have totally failed, Father. And let more and more people come to know you for your glory. I pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.